0: Good morning. We do have amazing Grace to share uh, with one another and around the world. And our, our, uh, our church rep for Operation Christmas Child is Grace Green, and she's asked for a microphone. She's standing over here. Uh, so, Grace, go ahead. Thank you.
1: You know, I think I figured out why Wayne was late this morning, because I'm not even sure he knows what day it is. He walked right by a big sign out the door that said, the deadline for our shoe boxes is today. And he talked like maybe we had lots of time to do another one. So, uh, you know, we love you, Wayne. Uh, I just got a text from Diane. Originally, we were just going to pray over our own church boxes. But I got a text from Diane. And she asked us to pray over all the boxes, so if two or three of you would like to go out into the foyer and lay your hands on the boxes there, and I will pray from here. So I'll just give you a minute to move out there if you'd like to, and uh, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the plenty we have. And when we think of what's going on in the world today, Lord, we need to be so thankful. I think we've kind of become pretty complacent about the goodness we have here in Canada. And Lord, we need to really realize that it all comes from you and that you are in control. Lord, we think of Operation Christmas Child today. Lord, we know that Uh, There's a lot of uh, hard work ahead still to get these boxes to the kids who need them. And so, Lord, I pray for the staff here and in the other countries who distribute these boxes. Lord, we pray that these boxes will be protected, that you will walk with them as they go. Lord, we thank you for... uh, just the way that you work it out that each child gets the very box that they need and there's so many stories about how that's happened and it's a miracle so we know for sure that this is your ministry we've seen the churches that have started because these little kids learn about you and learn about jesus and go home and tell their families and lord it's just such an amazing ministry so, Lord, we ask your protection over these boxes. We thank you for each person who packed one and brought it in. And, Lord, we pray that uh, as this next couple of weeks carry on in Calgary and uh, get ready to send these out, that you will be with the staff, be with everybody that goes down there, Lord, during this COVID season. We, they're trying to take precautions so nobody gets protected. gets in contact, but, Lord, only you are in control of that as well. Lord, we pray that you'll go with these boxes as they go to where they need to go. Amen. You can drop your boxes off any time today, and actually the truck doesn't go out till Tuesday, so if you want an extra day to, to uh, pack a box, that's fine.
0: Right. Thank you, and thank the, the whole team. There's there's many people around our community and many communities that make this all possible. Speaking about teams that work together, that's my theme for today. And I uh, I wanted to start with a, a little uh, a few thoughts about Sidney Crosby, uh, Pitt, Pittsburgh Penguins. He was much celebrated when he was drafted. Uh, and and started his NHL career and he was nicknamed Sid the Kid and he was the youngest player ever to reach 100 points in the NHL and that's just the first of many many milestones that that he reached and the one that caught my interest was in the 2007-2008 season he became the captain of his team and I don't know, some of you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if he was the youngest captain ever or the youngest captain at the time. I just remember there was a lot of talk about whether it was appropriate for such a young player to be a captain of a team when some of his teammates were were almost old enough to be his parents, and um, how could he lead effectively in that kind of situation with much more experienced, uh, older players in the team with with seniority and and, and all of that. And and it was an interesting conversation for me because I do try to pay attention to leadership. And I try to at least uh, go to a seminar or read a good book on leadership every year to, to continue to to upgrade and remind myself of leadership issues, trying to be a good leader. And uh, so that conversation about, about could this young kid be a good leader, a captain of a team? Was he qualified? Did he have what it takes? Could he lead? And uh, I think... I think the, uh, rain, the, the championship rings on his finger probably proved that he, he was up to the task. And, uh, and we have, uh, in our church, in our leadership structures, used the word team quite often. And so I want to address that. To think about leadership, I want to go back all the way, probably almost as far as we can in the Bible to Deuteronomy, to the law. And I want to read a passage that talks about leadership, Uh, maybe one that we haven't considered as a leadership passage, but I think it reveals something very, um, very clear and obvious about the heart of God and what God thinks about how we ought to lead within his people. In Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and you take possession of it and settle in it and say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And consider, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or the left, then he is, his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. It's an interesting description. In fact, I would go so far as to say odd and unusual. If you just think about it for a moment, first of all, it, makes the, it doesn't make the assumption that they will choose to have a king. It says, if you do choose to, then this is how you should go about it. Um, the stipulations are strict and unusual. First of all, the king is to be one whom God chooses. Now, of course, as Bible believing people, that just we just read over that, but just think about it for a moment. It's not to be someone that the people choose, but but even more importantly, the the way in which kings were chosen in those days, and I think right up until at least the middle ages in in our western uh history is A king either was chosen because he was born the eldest son of the previous king or a king was chosen, in a sense, you could say, because because he conquered the land and became king. But here it's, no, you you let God choose who's going to be king. You don't get to be king just because you conquer the land and gain the territory. You get to be king by God's choosing, and then the next stipulation is is in a way similar. It says he must be from among his fellow Israelites. He's not to be an alien. He's not to be someone who follows other gods or has different culture or different laws. He has to be from among your people. And again, that seems odd to us to make that stipulation because uh, we we uh, we even have controversies in Canada when a leader or an MP uh, is is elected to represent. An area, but doesn't have a residence in that area. That seems strange to us, uh, but but that would be that would be again something common in the ancient world, where where pe- where the people in a in a land in a territory would feel that their king is unjust and they don't like him, and so they they go into a neighboring territory where there's a good king, and they they kind of make alliances and undermine and, and get that king to take over the territory, so that they could have that king. And, and, he, and God is saying, no, he has to be from among the people that he rules. He can't be a foreigner. And then it says he must not acquire great numbers of horses. And again, culturally, that's unusual to us. But if we were to translate that today, we'd probably say he must not acquire great numbers of tanks and, and uh, airplanes and battleships. The horse and chariot was the premier, the top of the line, the most effective military uh, equipment available in those days. So he's not supposed to acquire a powerful army. And then it says he must not take part in the benefits of being a king. And it mentions, too, gold and wives. So he's not to become rich because of his position. And so when we go down that list, what it essentially says is, if you're going to choose a king, he must do none of the things that kings do. So what kind of king is he? He's not allowed to do any of the things that kings do. These are just the common, everyday things. This is what kings do. This is why you have a king. This is why you want to be a king. So what is the king to do? Two things. Two things he must write for himself a copy of the law. So if, you're, if you imagine going back to uh, King David, you ready to get on the throne? Oh, my wrist is so sore. Why is your wrist sore? I've been copying out the law of Moses. I'm not qualified to be king till I finish. We wonder why he writes Psalm 119, where he, he writes verse after verse of how he loves the law. He had to write it out if he's to be obedient king to God. But not only that, he's to read it every day of his life. So the, the, what a king must do is not put together an army, not become rich and powerful, not take over foreign lands, but he's to become a scholar of the word of God. And the other thing, He is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He's not to elevate himself above them. He's not to have a bigger house. He's not to have a higher salary. He's not to have special privileges under the law. He's a commoner. He's not to consider himself better than any of the people he rules over. Why is that? Why is that so important to God? If you're going to have a king, He really shouldn't be a king. He should be a priest, a scholar of the word, and a common person. Without an army, without riches, without the benefits and glory of being a king. Here's why. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. And his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You are his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The reason is because God is king. And the task of a king of God's people is not to be a king, but to lead people to the king, to guide people to the king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's to be an expert in knowing God, an expert, an example in how to be a person who follows God's law and serves God his king. He is not to be the final authority, even if he has the title that the world gives to that kind of authority. Now, you might wonder, well, that's that's Old Testament law, that's ancient history. What in the world does that have to do with us? Well, if we go to the birthplace of the church of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people, the church is born, the first body of Christ ever to exist is there, and Peter stands out on the balcony and preaches to the crowd. These are the words he says. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place on one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. And if we translate those words, Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ, Lord means the one who reigns, who rules over, and Messiah means anointed one. God has made Jesus Christ the one who rules over and is anointed to be king of his people, the church. David Understood, King David from the Old Testament, seeking to f- follow what we read in Deuteronomy, understood that he was not the promised king, that he was a stand-in, that he was a substitute. And he wrote in the Psalms, in Psalm uh, 16 and 110, the prophecies that Peter describes here, saying that a, a king will come, a ruler who will not see decay in the grave, And one who will sit in the throne of David and be king over his people. So, just like in the Old Testament, when a king was not really to be a king because he was to point to the king, likewise, Peter is saying, We now know this king more intimately because he walked among us. And now he sits, he has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, and he is still as he always has been, the king that we follow. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, a church leader, put it in these words. Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. So here's giving. He's, uh, Paul, uh, the preeminent leader of the early church, is writing to his disciple Timothy, who is also a leader in the church, and this is what he writes. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who will testify be, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession i charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ with which God will bring about in his own time god the blessed and only ruler the king of kings and lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And we normally read that last bit as a kind of standalone benediction. It kind of becomes a formula that just sounds appropriate at the end of a, end of a service or, or end of a, a funeral or something like that, a benediction. But here in its context... Paul is writing to Timothy about how to be a leader in the church and he makes this stark and and glorious reminder that, Timothy, you are not the king. God is the king. And he is the king of kings and he always has been. And he testified before Pontius Pilate that he is the king. And so your role is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And take hold of eternal life and be a witness of these things. In other words, to be the one who points the others to the king. That's the role of leadership among God's people. Not to be the king, but to point to the king. Now, let's just quickly go over this in terms of some really practical areas of our lives and see how that pans out or if it if it follows through in the scriptures. And so if we go here to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And so the instruction here is, is I think, right in line with what I've been saying. Fathers, I mean, it would be easy for you to be king, but your role is to... Point your family to the Lord, who is King, so that they don't become angry at, at His authority, so that they don't become um, turned off and stop seeking the Lord and try to go off on their own. That's the task of leadership in the home: is to is to instruct them in the Lord. We can look here in Second Corinthians. But what the But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. Here again, the Apostle Paul describing his method of leadership. It's not my intention to be a king over you and dominate you. It's my intention that you will look to the king. He doesn't use the word king here, but he uses the word domination. We want to work with you so that your faith becomes your own and you stand firm before God, pointing to the king. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. This is the one of whom Jesus said, You are the rock. And upon you I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If there was any a person who could lay claim to authority over God's people, it was Peter. And he says, I don't lord it over the people assigned. Don't lord it over. That's not the way we lead in the church. We lead by good example. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rules... Rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The people he was writing to lived in a context where the Gentiles ruled over the Jews, dominated them. He lived in a context where the free people ruled over the slaves, dominated them. Where the males ruled over the females and dominated them. And what he says here could be quoted right from Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you choose to have a king, he must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? Because God is king. He always has been. He always will be. And the only way we can truly follow him is by allowing him his position and not trying to take it from him ourselves. So I, I think it's actually a good example of leadership. team. The word team isn't not really in the Bible, but it's the word in our colloquial, in our context culturally that makes sense in terms of what's being described. Why could one of the youngest players, if not the youngest player, be an effective captain, an effective leader? Because he's not going to tell the goalie, who's much older than him, much more experienced, how to be a goalie. He's not going to tell the defenseman how to be a defenseman. He's not going to tell the right winger how to do that. He's going to stand in the center and practice longer and work harder, put in more sweat, jump in front of more pucks. And by his example towards the greater goal they're all aimed at, he's going to inspire everyone to do their specific individual part to the best of their ability. And that's leadership. He's not the king. He doesn't have the authority over them in that sense. He's the team captain, which means he plays his best and inspires everyone else to their best. So that's maybe the longest introduction I've ever given in a sermon. The sermon I want to teach you is very short and can be said in a few words. We've put together, we've put together in our church a church structure that is pictured like this, and I know you can't read it. You don't need to read it to understand what I'm saying. But if I point here, we have team leaders described in our our structure, in our constitution. And if we look here, we have ministry teams. And if we look here, We have the congregation that fills up the ministry teams under the team leaders so that we can fulfill what God our King, Jesus Christ, has called us to do, to grow up in our relationship with God, to grow strong in our support of one another, and to reach out in our community with the gospel message and around the world. The ever-constant temptation will always be for those team leaders to become rulers, dictators. It's always the temptation. Because you don't know how frustrating all you people are when we try to get you to do something. Yeah, you do. That's not a jab. It's just a reality. It's a volunteer organization. It's always tempting to try to find ways to gain power over you to get you to do what I want you to do. Always. And not only tempting to me, it's tempting to you as congregation members to look to the people we put in team leadership positions and say, why don't you get that done already? And then the pressure's on to to use a worldly method of dominating people. When the biblical method is, don't think of yourself more highly than the people you're leading, but help them to come into contact with the king. Let, him, let the king and their relationship with the king be the motivation. Because when the king gets a hold of your hearts, you'll do what he asks with enthusiasm and joy and excitement. And maybe our team leaders are asking you to do the wrong thing. <laughs> Sometimes I do that. And then I find out where, where the passion God's put in someone's heart Oh yeah, that's what you should be doing. That's what you should be doing. That's what we should be supporting. So the the role of leadership in the church is to know God better. To be intimately involved with our King. And then by way of inspiration to play harder. To have stronger faith. To pray fervently. To know the word inside and out. Maybe even write it out by hand sometimes. You get to know it really well when you write it down. Memorize it. Be an inspiration. Point people to the king. And that's why we have this structure. This is just not just by accident that we put it together this way, it's because we believe it effectively guides us in the biblical form of leadership with ministry teams where there's room for every one of you to plug in and find your spot where your gifts can be exercised. And we understand, and this is where hockey is such a good illustration, when, when the, when the uh, left forward lose, breaks his stick or, or injures his leg and is laying in the corner, the defenseman doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm not a forward, so, so just let that go. No, he steps in and he becomes a forward for a moment. When they pull the goalie at the end of the game, even though they don't have the right equipment on, every player dives in front of that slap shot to stop it. Takes the place of the goalie when he's not there. They, they fill in outside of their area of expertise, their proper place when, the, when, it, when it's vacant. But they still understand the proper place where their true gifts and abilities can be used to their maximum. And they step in there and they work and yes, The young kid can be the captain because he can inspire the rest by his effort and his expertise and his dedication to the goal. I'm going to read what Paul said about how he approaches things. First Corinthians two verse one. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. A shining example of how we lead in God's church. You might want to ask yourself a question. We all lead somewhere. We all have people who we influence. Ask yourself this. If I say this in my role in leadership, who will look good? Will I look good? Or will Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit look good? If I do it this way, who will get the credit? Will I get the credit? Or will Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, get the credit? I think that's a question that can determine. I trust and I hope that I've been able to lead at least a little bit in this light. This is what I see. It's not optional going forward in this church. This is the consistent message of God's word. And if you want to divide a church, all you have to do is become a little dictator in your area of influence. It'll only take about three to six months to shatter the unity if a few people do that. Why do we do it? I'm going to go off my notes for just a minute Why do we do that? Why why is it so tempting? I think the reason, the primary reason, the underlying thing is we lack faith. Did you hear what Paul said in that verse? He says, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. He could have spoken wisely. He could have come in with with all kinds of methods and and secret plans, as he says, but he chose not to because he actually believed That if he was unimpressive, but he led people to Jesus, the Holy Spirit would actually lead them. He had enough faith to step back and believe that God would do it. And I think we so often step forward in a different way in leadership in the church because we don't actually believe that God will do what he said he would do. Or maybe God does it and we don't like the direction he's leading the other person we think we know better than God it's a measure of our faith whether we can lead the way God asks us to I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we have a song where we can continue to meditate and think through these things and then Wayne will close our service in prayer